What are young people thinking about freedom and the future of our country? We'll talk to someone who knows exactly what's inside their heads. I'm Stuart Shepard, and First Liberty is taking you on the road this week. Charlie Kirk is founder and president of Turning Point USA. It's a national student movement that promotes free markets and limited government. They have a presence on thousands of high school and college campuses, a quarter million student members. He's also a host of the Charlie Kirk Show podcast and a radio show on the Salem Radio Network. We met up with him right before a First Liberty event in Houston recently. Interviewing Charlie is like interviewing a tornado from a helicopter. Hold on, because here we go. Hi, Charlie. Hello, how are we doing? I'm happy to be here. So thankful that you made some time Thank for you. us. Love we, First Liberty. I really want to get your opinion on these questions today. The, the first one, we are in an era, even this month, where students are protesting, making physical threats against conservative yep. speakers on campus. We've got uh, an appeals court judge, Jim Ho, who said, quote, students don't try to engage and learn from one another. They engage in disruption, intimidation, and public shaming, and he goes on. He's no longer accepting clerks from Yale and yeah. Stanford which is kind of a big deal. That's the problem. What's the solution? Oh boy, the solution's gonna take some time, but we either have to recapture or rebuild the institutions. But the immediate answer is to stop sending our prized young people to these institutions. You know, I, I say some things that are not always met with widespread agreement on the college topic. I think I finally built consensus though. I mean, I wrote the book College Scam, and I think the Stanford example has kind of been the nail in the coffin of the college cartel. Here you have law students. It's not just, you know, intro to lesbian students, right? This is law students at Stanford Law with a federal judge, and they interrupt the judge. They were mean, they were cruel, they were awful. And then the adult in the room, the diversity director, whatever, comes and encourages that type of behavior. Yeah. And, and these are the future Supreme Court clerks. I mean, you guys know, I mean, better than anybody else. And so in the immediate, I think we have to stop sending our kids to these places, send them to Hillsdale, send them to the good schools, Liberty, but then we either have to rebuild or recapture. I don't think recapturing is possible in the immediate. These are more like hedge funds with schools attached. At Stanford University, they have a couple thousand professors and 24,000 administrators. I mean, it, 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 it sounds like the FBI, right? Yeah. I mean, it's got more paper shufflers than actual people doing the work. And so uh, I think we need to reimagine what it means to have higher education. You know, I'm an entrepreneur, I have a lot going on. I tell any, anybody who wants to be wealthy, successful or powerful, go build the new colleges. Because there has never been such a um, such a misaligned incentive structure of people that want to learn that actually don't have the places to go learn. You often go face to face, toe to toe with college students who think they're going to outsmart you. They think that they're much smarter than, you know, Charlie over here. As we face this kind of harassment, as we face people who just want to shut us down, don't really want to talk about the issues, what are some things you've learned to actually bring them into a debate about issues as yeah. opposed to just shouting at each other? Yeah, I mean, I try to get better at this every semester and every year. I think I, think I have, uh, and I'm really, really thankful for that. Ask questions. Just ask people what they believe and why they believe it. Use the Socratic method. Yeah. You know, use you know, the, the dialectic that Christ taught us, which is to ask questions to get towards the truth. And so why do you believe that? Instead of telling them that they're wrong, identify the thing you think that's wrong and then narrow in on it and then ask a couple questions about it, right? And, and yeah, look, I mean, some of these college kids, you know, they really, they have been told by their professors they're now subject matter experts because they have a semester <laughs> of sociology under their belt. Yeah. And it takes a lot of study, it takes a lot of uh, pursuit of wisdom. And here's the one thing is that you can get wisdom at a younger age if you study things that are wise, that fear the Lord. The beginning of God is the, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
yet they're, they're learning garbage. They, they, are, they are learning books that are opposed to Christianity, opposed to the natural law, opposed to systems that work, opposed to the good, the true, and the beautiful. And so um, I try to then find the more fundamental questions. Um, our videos that we do from these campus debates, we've had our most successful semester ever huh. as far as not just what we did on campus, which is amazing, but tens of millions of people are now viewing our content because we're now getting to the more fundamental questions, which I think is exciting, but it's also really scary because now I'm asking what is a human being, what is good, what is true. I shouldn't have to ask those questions. The fact I'm asking those questions mean the entire civilization is at risk, <laughs> but it's actually those are the questions that matter because everything else is just an extension of the things that they should have learned in eighth grade. You have a better sense than most people of, of what it's like to be inside the head of today's college kids. They are different than yeah. my generation. I think they're different than your generation. Yeah. What do you see that's different? How, what do we need to know about them in order to be able to enter the that's conversation? A, that's a really good question. Um, so we all need to think deeply about this. So I've been doing this for 11 years. So my generation was incredibly hopeful. There was a lot of optimism. There was a utopian element to my gen. I'm 10 years removed from, eight years removed from the college graduation, about 11 to 12 years removed from high school. Okay, yeah. so just understand where I'm on this, on kind of the timeline very hopeful. We can change the world, give us political power, we can make the world in a better image. That was, that's a bad way to view things, but it's not the worst. What now is pervading college campus is totally different. I've visited UC Berkeley four times now. I set up a card table and I just talk to kids for hours. You learn a lot when you do that, yeah. right? I mean, you're hopefully teaching them something, you're hopefully doing something positive, but you're receiving energy, you're receiving attitudes, you're receiving sentiments, you're receiving language. And that's why I wanted to ask you, because you hear more than most yeah. of us will ever get to. And we are now, we are, we are, this is the most nihilistic generation in American history, and that's really, really scary. I'll take utopianism over nihilism any day. With utopianism, at least there's an energy of a forward force to try to do something somewhat good. Nihilism is that everything, there is no objective anything. All that matters is my personal pleasure. And then the, the super nihilists think that the only thing that there is is power, so I'm gonna tell you how to live your life, so their meaning is derived. And it really is, you know, Viktor Frankl's existential crisis now of an entire generation. Why? It's the most secular generation, the most pharmaceutically medicated generation, the most alcohol addicted generation, the most weed addicted generation, the most pornography addicted generation. They have more hedonism, more instant gratification than any other generation ever, and they're more miserable. They're more godless, and yet they have more chemical substances that are quote unquote making them happy, and they're not. It's just instant dopamine hits that make them empty. So what does that mean politically? Well, it means that these people don't believe in anything. They immediately think that you're, you're lying to them. They have no sort of, I'm, I'm generalizing, but it's an approximation yeah. of the truth, right? Yeah. They generally think that there is no purpose. This is why they're the most suicidal generation we've ever had. I mean, this should be if our leaders actually cared about things that matter. I think the suicide epidemic in America means a, it matters a lot more than what's going on in Eastern Ukraine like a lot more. The fact that we have the most kids killing themselves should be a fire alarm. We should have congressional committees. We should have investigations. And no one really asks the question, why is this generation that has more access to wealth, power, you know, technology, food, you know, things that we thought were gonna bring happiness are killing themselves more than anything else? And I think the answer is pretty simple for those of us Christians. It's a spiritual void, right? And, um, but yeah, the, in, the, in the mind of a young person basically is, I know I don't believe the conservative thing, the liberal thing I probably agree with, but what's the point? We're all just a clump of cells. Yeah. 
I remember studying a literary piece in college called A Clean, Well-Lighted Place. The whole idea being, just don't bother me, just let me sit somewhere and while away the days until I'm gone. That's what you're describing. Well, there's a whole canon of nihilistic thinkers. And admittedly, I only read it on the surface level because I, inter I, I really internalize things I read. Yeah. It's so demonic, it's so dark, I try not to look at it. I mean, Alfred K. Moo is one of the most you know, famous right, where he would basically say the first question someone has to ask is the question of existence. Should you continue? Yeah. That's what a young person is, 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 is receiving on a nonstop basis. One theme that we're talking about right now is patriotism. Is there still room for patriotism for young people? And well, how, how does that happen? This is one of my great hopes. If you were to say, Charlie, what are the great threats and the great hopes? If the Marxists execute their takeover of the country, which they're close to, right? They're, they have the Bastille in their sights. Let's just be very, like they, they, they are closer than Hitler was to Moscow, right? They are steps away. They will be the first revolutionary force ever to take over a country that hates the country they want to assume power of. I want you to think about how historically weird that is. I mean, even the Bolsheviks, they said, we love Russia. Yeah. Uh, Mussolini was pro-Italian. These are revolutionaries that hate the country they want to then assume control of. I always laughed when Kamala Harris was you know, running for president. It's like, oh, this country is racist and bigoted. Why do you want to be vice president? It sounds like a terrible place. Sounds, yeah. like, sounds like a hellscape. And so, yes, here's, I have this, one of my places of hope is I think the way that God has wired us is there's a yearning in your soul to actually like the place you're from. And what we've done is we've told young people to hate the place they're from. I think there can be an explosion of patriotism because within our DNA, within our natural being, is this yearning to love what you know. And yet they've been told to hate the flag and hate the customs and hate the history and hate, hate the tradition. So it's a great opportunity. One way we're encouraging people to do that is a campaign we're pushing called Restoring Faith in America. It's based out of a couple of Supreme Court decisions that we got to win, uh, one involving a, a World War I memorial, the other about the coach that wanted to pray yeah, on the 50. It's great, great it, work you guys do. It opens up the gates for people to put prayer back in the city council meeting, to put uh, the Ten Commandments back up on the wall at the school, to put the nativity scene back on the county square. Do you see that as something that young people could be a part of? Not yet. Our young people, turning point, yes. I mean, they, uh, they're not religious. They think those things to be toxic because they've been taught of that. But it's the only way. And when I heard that Texas wants to put the Ten Commandments back in the courtroom, I say, heck yes. Yeah. I mean, that, that, is the, that is the Sinai and Camelot. And so it's creation, Sinai, Camelot, I think, are the three apexes of the, of the scriptures. Right? You have the creation story, you have Sinai, and then you have Camelot, obviously. Not Cam is it Cam Calvary, not Camelot. Sorry. Long day. <laughs> I was thinking, I don't know what version you're yeah. using. but Calvary, not Calvary. It's I'm with you. Long day. Calvary. I got you. Right? So those three are the three apexes of Scripture, right? And the Decalogue, which literally comes from the Greek, Decalogos, right, which is the ten truth statements, is the is what we consider to be normative in the West. Why wouldn't we have that in our courtrooms? Why wouldn't we have that in our schools? And I mean, I would love one atheist, one secularist to tell me, okay, if not the Ten Commandments, then what? What is your morality that you, show me what is better, what is more tried and tr proven. What is it, if not the Ten Commandments, that you want to live by? You want kids not to honor their parents? You want people not to rest one day? You want people not to tell the truth? The answer is yes, they don't want those things. Huh. Very good. I, you could be anywhere. You have a crazy schedule, yes. and you chose to be here at a First Liberty event. Why is that? Why is it important? Well, I, I love Kelly Shackelford. He's a great guy. He's become a good friend over the years, and you guys win. You know, there's a lot of talk, but you guys go up into, uh, I'll, I'll be very nice, you go to D.C., and you go to the Supreme Court, and you guys play to win, and you guys do win.
Um, there's a lot of lawfare on the right, a lot of lawfare on the left. There's definitely more lawfare on the left than the right, but there's not that there's no lawfare on the right. But not everybody plays to win. I can't tell you, I lose my mind when I see silly lawsuits that set bad precedent, and then it harms all of us. And when I was first understood first liberty strategy, I said, that makes sense. You're not just going to sue to sue. You're going to play to win. Set a precedent that then can apply. That's exactly how Mark Elias and exactly how the left-wing ACLU has operated for 50 years. They find the opportunities to win, the right cases, the right plaintiffs, the right arguments, the right venues, and then they play to win. So that's why I'm here. I mean, we need first liberty in our country. I mean that. Not just the Coach Kennedy case. I hope we can, you know, go after the Lemon case and go after all these different things. And, uh, you know, I, I'm a political guy. I'm a radio guy. I'm a lot of different things. And so... All of President Trump's amazing successes of putting these people in place would be nothing if we don't have the right complaints going in front of these judges. So that's why I'm here. Charlie Kirk, great chatting with you again. Thank you. Appreciate it. I always enjoy getting to hear from Charlie. If you enjoyed it as well, uh, make sure you share this with your friends on social media. Just click the little share link on whatever platform you're on and share it along. Uh, also, we'll put a link to Turning Point USA to their website in the text that goes along with this video. First Liberty is fighting for what matters most.